0: Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event with Nigerian-born UK writer, Ben Okri. Ben won the Booker Prize in 1992 for his novel, The Famished Road. He is an accomplished writer of poetry, short stories, essays and novels. His work has been translated into 26 languages and he has garnered numerous other awards and honours. He is also a Vice President of the English Centre of International Pen. His most recent novel, The Age of Magic, is imbued with what Okri dubs dream logic, as well as with sensibility and imagination, as he chants the journey of a group of documentary filmmakers on their way to film a piece on happiness in Arcadia. Ben speaks with Paula Morris in a session supported by Platinum patron, the James Wallace Arts Trust. We hope you enjoy this session.
1: Thank you very much. Welcome
2: again to Auckland This time you don't have to tell a story You don't have to stand up and be a stand-up comedian (laughs) You can relax a little bit So as I said, we're going to talk And Ben is going to read a a couple of times I hope, from the book So whenever the mood takes him, he will read You can either sit here or go to the lectern Or wander the crowds, whatever you choose So to begin with I wondered um, About the novel We left this group of travellers The scattered crew, as you call them catching the train from Paris into Switzerland in the last book. Why did you decide to take up their journey again? Or was this always your intention?
1: Well, in a way, I don't see the book as taking up their journey in a a sense of um, a sequel. I see it as a very separate book standing on its own. Um, I, I like the idea of, with each book, exploring some very special angle um, in relation to the idea of Arcadia, the idea of our uh, times, dispossession, suffering, evil, I wanted each book to explore a particular universe of ideas and realities, um, and with this one for me it 's magic and evil it 's the relationship between what we seek and what we find um, it's, uh, I just wanted a, I, I came back to this. Mood because I just, I don't know, I was fascinated by, by the idea of Switzerland, by the idea of, the idea of places that are changed um, by fame. It's also a meditation on fame because we're kind of fame-obsessed age. Um, it's also about celebrity. Um, it just many themes came together for me. Um, but it was a more difficult book to write because... Uh, with with um, in Arcadia, it was that was an in- initiatic journey that we're beginning. Um, with this with this book, uh, I, I wanted every aspect of its mood, the twin pole between magic and evil, between happiness um, and despair, to be seated in every sentence. I wanted a different kind of mood with this. It took me a lot longer to shape this book.
2: So it took you a long time, but it's much more compressed in many ways than in Arcadia. It's written in books and sections and chapters, but some of those chapters are a line long or a paragraph long, as though you've written pauses and silences into the book. Is that important to you, that you're sort of slowing the reader up, or you want the reader to absorb the book slowly rather than race through it?
1: I think we tend to treat books as uh, machines of page turning. Um, but for me a book is not about turning the page the book is about the mood that it creates inside you a book is about uh, an excuse for, for meditation an excuse for deep thought an excuse for um, internality um, so it really isn't about you doing this it's about you doing this and pausing and going off into a journey into yourself I like triggering internal journeys. I think that's how I like reading. I like reading in such a way that every, I read for a bit and I stop and I wander off in, into a kind of state of mind. I don't know what that state of mind might be or what it might yield. But that's what I find the most productive about reading. Because I think reading is not really about the book. It's about the reader. It's about the reader's mind, the reader's heart, their soul, their history. Um, I think reading is, myst- is mysterious and powerful for that, re- for that reason. Um, it's an excuse to loosen, open up the angels and demons hanging around inside us. Um, so that's why that's why the book is shaped like that. Pauses, gaps, spaces, uh, relationship between uh, a th- thin thread of text on a page and a vast blankness. You know, I wanted the page sometimes. I wanted... because. It, I wanted the page to approximate something of how, we, how, how reality is. I mean, we're sitting here in this auditorium, and the relationship between things and space is, you know, it's, there's more space than things. I'm looking at you, and there's this vast space above us and surrounding us. Uh, I wanted the text to have something of that sense of, of, bl- of blankness, of transparency, of the air that we wander through. It's, 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 it's difficult. But I, 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 thought, I thought there should be no reason why the page, we should not try and make the page approximate something of the condition of a work of art. So that not only are you reading what's there on, on the page, but you're also subliminally interpreting the page as it looks.
2: You just said something These about... These are it. little
1: follies I indulge myself in.
2: Why not? It's your book. <laughs> you just said something about Switzerland and your choice of Switzerland, and you said thinking about fame, and I I was thinking that some people in the audience might think, what is he talking about? Has Kim Kardashian been to Switzerland recently? (laughs) But the idea is that the town is something that was very famous in the past, a famous resort,
1: yes? Yes, the town was hugely famous. I've disguised it because I don't want to get into trouble with the... um, um, Swiss authorities. (laughs) With the people from that town. But it used to be hugely famous, and it kind of got ruined by... People who turned up there—the rich, the successful, the famous, opera singers—and they actually ended up destroying this town, um, um, ruined it, ruined its economy, ruined its youth, ruined its 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 friendships between the original, you know, inhabitants. Um, and when they ruined it, they just they just buggered off. They just went somewhere else. Um, I was fascinated by that. Someone becomes really famous. We descend on it. We devour it. And then we look around and say, where's the the next place that is fresh and innocent so we can go and eat and devour? And we leave that one behind. And we don't care what we've done. And I was was fascinated by that idea as well um, as to really whether, whether... things becoming as famous as we'd like them to be really actually is a good thing. So it's a meditation on authenticity and fame. What happens when something becomes way, way, way too famous? Does it lose its soul? Does it lose its deep spirit, its deep connection with its history? Fascinated by these things.
2: Now, Lau, the presenter of the documentary that's being made, is, I suppose, the famous person in the group. He's the front man for the group. And he is... Black, which means that he experiences certain things in Europe that the others don't. Moments of discomfort or um, his sort of outsider statuses is, is affirmed. For example, when they move into the hotel and he gets something from Hans, the owner, that he thinks the others are getting, he says that Hans treats him with a certain undefined suspicion. And that's part of Lau's reality of Europe, but he's very aware that the others in the group don't even perceive it. It seems to be rather than a political point you're making, something that's part of the novel's exploration of what's visible and what's invisible to other people. Lao sees things that other people don't.
1: Yeah, it is a political point, but I wanted the political point to be invisible because in life it is a lot of the time. Um, People are a little bit strange towards you for one reason or another. Um, They don't come with a big signboard saying, this is the reason why we're being strange to you. Um, they just they just are they just you know and sometimes you know um, and it's, it's invisible it's, it's, it's there to be interpreted it's an interpretative act or an interpretable act um, which most of us don't interpret sometimes I'm with people something has happened to say, say a gay friend or something someone has responded to them in some way and the rest of us haven't noticed till they say hey did you notice the way in which so and so just spoke to me and he said, no, I, really? Oh. Um, and then you think, okay, this has happened to me too, so I better not be suspicious of that. Um, but in a way, you have, you have kind of like given away something to the audience because the way I wrote, wrote it in the book, you, you treat all the characters evenly in your mind. Um, it's written in such a way that this unease that, that Paula talked about kind of creeps up on you. Um, and then you suddenly become aware of, of the source of of, 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 a, of a difference. And it's because I was interested in the way in which we, we, confer, we confer upon texts our own reality. It's, it's really quite strange. So if I don't say the character is black, when you're reading it, you will read it however you are. Um, it's that aspect of reading that really interested me. Um, it, it, it also kind of gave me a, uh, an important uh, reason to examine something that f- that is also very fascinating to me, which is um, how do we perceive character in people? How do we really perceive, perceive people? Do we perceive them through our eyes first and then through uh, other points of contact with them? Um, do we perceive them through our sense of... <laughs> There's this wonderful line in... Um, Miss Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, where Miss Dalloway says, you know, if there's one thing about her, it's her instinct for people. Um, do we do that? Do we meet people and respond first with an instinct for them? We either like them or we don't? Um, or do we make subtle judgments? And I just want to examine that in the text to see whether, you know, the reader makes certain judgments about the characters and then suddenly have to readjust their, their perceptions also I was very keen on the idea of actually reflecting people in a book so that you get their character first before you actually know what or who they are in terms of whatever gradations that we have in this world. Um, I, I, I saw a film many years ago of um, Camus' uh, Le Trangier. Um I saw it in London, kind of one of those rare seasons. Um, and I was really pretty shocked. I was I was, I was shocked to, appa- to a point of almost being appalled. Because you see this film, and suddenly, you know, The Outsider is a different film. It's a film about race. It's a film about, it's a, it's a raw film about race. It's a very disturbing film about Arabs and, and European settlers in Algeria. But when you read the book, that dimension is not there at all. Um, it's that It's just a continuing meditation on on that.
2: Uh, the book is called The Age of Magic, and there are some magical presences in the book. I mean, one is the unseen Malasso, who's their patron, the commission of the documentary, but at some point in the book it's, he starts to, they start to wonder if they've actually just made him up, if he's, this, if he's a, a real person or maybe a demon. And then Lao, at the very beginning of the book, is visited by uh, a spirit, a green spirit, called a quilf who seems quite pleasant, chats to him, gives him some advice, disappears again. Now, I, I know that you're not a f- fan of the term magical realism, magic realism, but but you're quite happy to have magic in your books. It's not an issue.
1: Um, yeah, I'm, quite, I'm really happy to have magic in my books. Um, and the, the reason it's quite simple is because I don't know. Um, I, I see magic in life. Um, it's not something I'm... I i do not try to try to put in my books something I don't f- haven't perceived one way or another in, in life itself. Um, in fact, I couldn't really do that. I couldn't really make it work in the books if I hadn't, in one form or another, experienced or sensed it in life. Um, so for me, it's an, it is an act of imagination, but it's also an act of transliteration. Um, I don't know if I really should say so, but the quilf figure was something i actually did experience um so i was, I was drawing upon a very 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 tangential experience very it, it could be disputed let's put it that way um but these things are what the things that we call magical in life often can be disputed um, did it really happen did i really see that um do, do those numbers really line up like that? You know, I, I've, got, I've got this friend. We take a great interest in just seeing the way in which things appear to coincide in life. Like your, the room number you get given sometimes coinciding with your seat number on an airplane. Um, I once made a journey through America. And I kept being given the same room number throughout the whole journey. I mean, I didn't ask for it. You know, I'd I'd be given my room number, and I say, "What is my what is my room number, please?" And they say, "Oh, it's number twenty-two or something like that." And I'm saying, "Really?" Um, And there was there was one occasion I got so fed up with it, I said, "Look, can I have another room number, please?" Um, They gave me another room number, but when you added the numbers up together, (laughs) um, so I I don't know I don't I don't know if it's just me, um, but but I have noticed that life. I, I think, I think I'm, I'm just tempted to just put forward here a very modest theory, um, which is that reality seems to conform to our perception of it. Reality seems to conform to how we think it to be. It, 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 it's like a, reality seems to have like a boomerang effect. What we put out in terms of our perception, our fear, our hopes, our dreams... Seems to come back. So if you don't believe in anything, if you don't believe in numbers or sequentialities, coincidences, or anything like that, they might be happening all the time. They might be dancing in front of you. Um, they might be falling on your head. And you simply wouldn't see them. So I think it's also a perception thing. I think, I think I, I've always said this that reality is very, very receptive to, to perception, it's very receptive to our thoughts, very receptive to our. To the to, 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 the, to the to the energy that we put out um, I had a friend who was writing a book about uh, a certain subject and that subject just kept turning up in his life while he was writing the book uh, he told it to me I says, yes of course it makes sense you're thinking about this all the time you're generating it all the time um, it's just a very modest theory
2: People sometimes ask me if I've ever seen a ghost. and you? S- well, I say I don't know because I oh. think I'm not open right. to thinking I've seen a ghost. Right. But I may have. I just don't realize it. How do we know? Have you seen ghosts?
1: Yeah. I saw a ghost as a kid. Really? Yeah. It's not difficult to see.
2: Was this in London
1: or? This is in Nigeria.
2: What did it look like?
1: Like, like a ghost. LAUGHTER <laughs>
2: I'm sorry, this is a digression, but I'm very interested.
1: No, it's just kind of like a hovering... You see, the thing about these things, they're not things that you can see when you're, like, staring straight ahead to kind of look for them. If if someone says this house is haunted and you put all the lights out and you're going around looking like that, you're not going to see them. Um, If a house is haunted and you don't know about it, you could just be sort of like in the kitchen and you just see something. Um, And I think horror movies understand that, actually... The real, the really strange things in life are tangential. They happen at, they happen at the side of, of, of vision. That's why we doubt them. Um,
2: Do you think we're more open to these things when we're children as well, when the, the lines between what's real and what's imagined are not as fixed?
1: Yeah, I think, I think, I think with children, I think children are learning. Children, we, we are constantly teaching children what reality is. Um, I think when, when I think when you're really very young, you're not you're not told yet that that is reality, and that is not reality. You just see, you just see what you see. Um, I had this um, I had this um, this daughter of, uh, of an aunt. Um, when when my aunt died, uh, the daughter kind of woke up in the morning, and she was just looking straight in front of her. She was looking up, straight in front of her. And we came to get her, and she was just looking straight in front of her. We said, well, what are you looking at? She says, looking at my mom. I said, really? She's just looking at her. She says, she's right here. What do you do? Do you, after a couple of years, tell her that actually you did not see your mother? That actually what you saw was like an imagining, your fear, your grief? What do we do? That's what we do, in effect. We train them out of the mysteries that are here that we don't see anymore. We train them to become like us.
2: Now in the Age of Magic, Lau and Mistletoe, his lover, who's an artist, uh, they wander the town sort of incessantly. And it keeps moving in a way. They keep getting lost. Things are not where they thought they were. They cross dimensions in there. And without really questioning it at all, they just accept everything they come across. And time seems suspended.
1: Yeah, I'm fascinated by the suspension of time. I sometimes do it with friends. We sit down together, we start to talk to one another, and we talk about strange subjects in a very indirect way. And we slow down our conversation. And kind of slowly, we kind of mesmerize the space around us and we sometimes even frighten ourselves. Slowing down of time is—it's not time that slows down; it's our minds It's it's, it's, it's time. I keep saying that time is not a an objective thing. We have a we have an instrument for calibrating what we choose to define as time, and we're under its.
2: We've got a big clock. Yeah, we've
1: got those clocks, but that's not really time. Um, Time bends and stretches, compresses and ex- expands in relation to our feelings, our emotions. You know, I keep saying to people, you know, time is different. A, young, a lover running to go meet the loved one, time is really different from, you know, someone running to the dentist. It's very, very different, very different. One is like very slow, can't, can't get there fast enough. And the other is like, before you know it, you're there. The dentist is hovering over you.
2: In a way, it's like the time when you're playing when you're a child, where time disappears and you have no sense of it whatsoever.
1: Or those, those afternoons of when you're, when you're kind of like in your early adolescence, so you're kind of like your childhood. Those long afternoons that seem to feel like years. I remember those afternoons. I want to I set a whole novel in one of those eternal childhood afternoons. <laughs>
2: Was the weather good in this afternoon or not? Oh, it was
1: perfect, perfect Nigerian weather.
2: Would, would you like to read a little bit from the book?
1: You want me to? Are you getting restless with our conversation?
2: <laughs> I, I really want some of that Coke, actually. But I'm not going to.
1: Okay, I'm going to read a. I'll read the first chapter and one or two other bits. And the first chapter goes like this. Some things only become clear much later. That's it. <laughs> now, when, when, when you, if you get a copy of this book and you take it home, this is how you'd probably read it. Some things don't become clear much, later. <laughs>
2: and
1: then you get to the next chapter. But actually, I would like you to read it like this. Some things only become clear much. Later. In short, I'd like you to read it very slowly. It's written to be read slowly. If you can remember my pauses, it would be very helpful. (laughs) Shall I read a bit more, or are you happy with that?
2: I'm just reflecting. I, no, I was just thinking, uh, somewhat, when I was at university here, I think it was Roger Horrocks or Winston Kerner told the story of Robert Creeley, the poet, saying at the end of each line, he wants you to go around the block before you get to the next line. Oh, me that's lovely. That.
1: That's lovely.
2: And I've probably misremembering it all terribly. It was a long time ago.
1: I would recommend climbing up Mount Eden before you get to the next, <laughs> next line.
2: Would you read some more, Ben?
1: Okay. But that line, I'll tell you the story of that line, that line, which is also the The first chapter, the first sentence, the first paragraph. It really was, originally it was about three pages long. And um, I kept cutting and compressing and compressing. um, Till I realized that um, this this is it. It says everything I wanted it to say. And also, it it does something I also felt was important. um, Which was for it to affect the way in which you read everything that comes afterwards. Because if you're told that something's only become clear much later, then everything you're reading after that becomes provisional. Um, and I think anyway that's, that's true in life. It takes me a long time to understand you know, something that happens um, at any given moment. I'm still chewing over stuff from 30, 40 years ago. It's kind of hard to know what to read after that.
2: You don't want to
1: read chapter 2? <laughs> no, not chapter 2. This is what he's like. I, f- I feel really bloody-minded now. I'm going to read chapter 9. This is when Lao is on the, on the train and is asking the, um, the people he's about to interview about whether they know what Arcadia means. And they give him a really blank look. And Lau goes off into this thought. Lau noticed for the first time the architecture of the word. Arcadia. It began and ended with the first letter of the alphabet. Beginning with a beginning and ending with a beginning too there was also a beginning right at its center. It occurred to Lau that letters might be symbolic, might conceal deeper meanings. He glimpsed the words hinterland. Begin at the beginning. At the midpoint, begin again. And at the end, return to the beginning. Never move far from the Alpha of life. Replenish yourself in the Aleph. Renew the core with the Alf. In A we begin and to A we return. Four rivers flow into the Garden of Eden. In one of them, as an old commentary says, the gold of the land is good. A fifth river can be said to flow from Eden to Arcadia. And its allegories are wonderful, its gold, good. When we are young, we set up with dreams. In the middle of the journey of our lives, we find perhaps that we have lost our way. At the end, we find the origin and we begin again.
2: Thank you. Your prose style has been described at, by some people as poetic, which I always think is a bit of a loaded gun when people are talking about fiction writers. <laughs> some people mean it as praise and other people don't really. Uh, when you, you talked with my students on Friday about being a realist writer and a poetic writer and you suggested that fiction writers needed to be a bit of both. And I wondered if you could expand on that for us now.
1: Well, I think fiction appeals to the imagination. I think that's its primary. The only way it can affect us is through our imagination. Uh, the imagination is by its nature, very nature, poetic. It's, it's almost like a poetic organ that we have inside us. Um, so you say something simple like, Let us go then, you and I, while the evening is stretched out against the sky. The evening stretched out against the sky? Really? (laughs) The evening stretched? Uh, But the mind, the imagination receives it. It doesn't doesn't try and take the evening and do that to it. It just calmly receives it. That's because we've, we've got this organ of... Of, of poetry, which is what the imagination is, um, and I think it's not possible to write about reality without engaging in some way the, st- the strange nature of reality, which is its poetic quality. It's uh, reality is not just plain reality; it's also tinged with something else. Um, and I think writing—I think writing is at its best when it. is is dipped into two streams, uh, the streams of the ordinary and the stream of the ordinary and the stream of, for want of a better word, the poetic, the suggestive. Um, Because everything that happens to us, uh, the good things and the bad things, comes with a kind of, um, comes with an aura, comes with a penumbra of, of strangeness around it almost all the, the kind of big things that have happened to me, my, 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 my heart receives it as strange. It's like, really? That's, that's most peculiar. It could be just bumping into a friend that you haven't seen for a long time in a strange city. And you think, wow, why here? Why now? Um, I mean, even, if I, even as I sit here now and just feel your presence, it has this tinge. Of strangeness, and I think I think fiction should acknowledge that um, that 's why I always say that the, the truth the true richness of fiction is suggestive. it always hints at something else that we 're not quite getting um, that 's what makes something at the back of our necks the, the, the stand up a little bit in the presence of you know I went to see Miss Dalloway yesterday, was it yesterday or the day before? And there were just some sentences of, the, of that lady that just suddenly you find yourself, just come awake in an unusual way. And it's because of that suggestiveness. It's like just this hint that reality is a little bit more than we think, think it is. And that we're, we're under-processing it. Um, and what the really great writers do is they fire up, they charge up our... Uh, reality receptors um, so that we suddenly sense more for for a few moments Um, and then we leave and go back to the ordinary world but for for just those few moments you know something is charged with a slight uh, penumbra a slight edge of, of mystery
2: so is it the task of the fiction writer to try to capture that on the page in language somehow without explication?
1: Yes, that's why, that's why, that's why, that's why compression uh, and simplicity, two very difficult things to do at the same time. Because the more you compress something, the more dense it becomes, the more complicated, the more. But compression and simplicity really, really very difficult. Um, yeah, it is. it is. It's what that's what lingers in our imagination. Um, Yeah, I like writing that awakens for a moment our extra Um, eye. I am convinced that we've got more senses than we use. I'm utterly convinced of it. Um, And I think that's what really great poets do. They sort of they may they may believe it themselves or not. It really doesn't matter. It's what they do that counts in the charge of the moment of, of writing. Sometimes we're greater than ourselves when we write. I, I had a writer friend who says, my books are better than me, he said. <laughs> and I said, yeah, what do you expect?
2: Last night we were both here at Murakami, mm-hmm. and he said he gets up at four every morning and starts writing. Do you do, you do that as well?
1: I think four is a bit spartan. <laughs> I think that's really that's really um that's quite military um no i'm 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 having my best dreams at four and i you know i think if you know me you know that i'm really keen on dreams how many people here actually kind of like remember their dreams when they wake up in the morning oh, quite a few many and quite, women and quite I suspect. Few, and quite a few don't how many here write down their dreams in the morning when they? Ah, interesting. How do you, why, do you have, why do you remember your dreams and not write them down? It seems like a shame. <laughs> what, well, you think you're going to remember them forever? Dreams are the most evanescent things in the world. I've had some perfect, incredible dreams, and I thought, thought to myself, you know what, I'll remember that when I get up in about ten minutes. Ten minutes is gone. Not even the faintest suggestion of it remains. So no, I think more like more like seven, eight o'clock is a, is a bit more a bit more human for me. You
2: know? I'm impressed. You know, I've got a, so many questions to ask you, but this, but I do want you to read again. But I just want to ask you one thing, which has kind of to do with us here in New Zealand. Um, it was something you wrote in one of the essays in a time for new dreams, and reading it, I felt like it had real resonance for us here in New Zealand at the moment. Quite sadly, actually, you wrote. There is no mystery about the decline of nations. It begins with the decline of its writers. The first symptom is the nation's failure to celebrate its writers. You said, it's like living in poverty when gold and diamonds, like unrecognized among the weeds in your garden, in our garden. I mean, despite the wonderful audiences and readers at this festival, many of the writers here in New Zealand feel at the moment, it's not the best of times, shall we say beyond the festival, for people reading or caring about our words. And I I wondered how, what you thought about how we help restore what you call in that essay, brightened Times. What can we do?
1: That's a really tough question. I wish you hadn't asked me that question.
2: You can pass.
1: (laughs) That's a really, really tough question. It's Um, a tough
2: time at the moment.
1: It's a tough time for writers everywhere, actually, actually. Okay, some countries are having a kind of like a boom in, in in writers who are being celebrated. Nigeria is doing really well right now with with writers england's England always does fairly well with writers you know um, America does well I, th- I think it's its size um, we don't know that many really great Russian writers right now, do we so i, I it's, it's it's very difficult i don't think it's anything that can be done by governments or by art councils or by agencies you can 't set out to <clears throat> get writers to be better appreciated. I think the land the people either do or they don 't if they don 't it 's their loss and their poverty um, and if they do it 's their exaltation uh, and their richness um, i think I think it's, I think maybe it Tiny bit is what writers do. I think maybe we we have a little responsibility in this, to uh, constantly, in some way or other, stun our readers into a new receptivity. Um, but if they don't read, if they don't read, to begin with, I, I don't know what you can do. It's it's a, that's a despairing question.
2: Sorry. You're also, I know, a believer in trying to create new literary forms, not just simply keep repeating the ways people have written in the past, that there's still innovation to be had in fiction, maybe hybrid forms, maybe approaching the novel in a very different way. Do you feel very strongly about that?
1: I do, actually. Um, I don't want to come across as a kind of a, um, a rabid, radical, innovator, uh, kind of waving the flag for innovation for its own sake. But um, on the one hand, I really do appreciate the fact that uh, any form, the short story, the novel, it develops a tradition. You get used to that tradition. You get used to the the particular pleasures of, of, of a way in which a story is told, beginning, middle, ends, characters introduced in a in the right way, um, foreshadowed, and yeah, I, I, I appreciate all of that. Um, but I think that um, when we get too used to something, we we lose it. We we read it like that. We we get casual with it. We fall asleep to it. Um, and I think it's a little bit our responsibility. I think one of the things that innovation does in literature, in art. Is that it just slightly jolts us into a a new way of reading, a new way of looking, a new way of experiencing because we get jaded, we get you know you know familiarity breeds contempt um, so it's just it 's just that um, how can you do something new while still doing something old because to do something new without doing something old is to really be is to stand on one leg um, so that's that 's the real That's the real difficulty. Um, To do something old as if it were new, wow, that's even more amazing. If Jane Austen were to come back now, would she write in exactly the same way she wrote then? I'm not so sure. She'd like to take into account the fact that that already exists. I want to push this forward a little little bit more. Um, Also, the other part about innovation that interests me is that... um, the constant search for new ways of seeing, feeling um, experiencing um, kind of mirrors us because we are richer than we know we are richer than we think um, and there are all kinds of parts of our mind and our hearts and our sensibility which maybe, maybe the big tragedies in life hits us with, wakes us, makes us wake up for a moment if you were here when I talked about my mother's death big things like that and suddenly reality stretches and extends itself and you perceive something new um, but otherwise we just go about our daily lives in, in a certain way we, we you know we we have a we have a formula for living and it works but we, we, we need to be woken up just a little bit more from time to time and that's that's what uh, deep Disciplined innovation does um, and I think it 's important I think we need it um, I think we need it not not every day I mean you know not every day, but we, we we need people to come along and just have two 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 eyeballs on the same side of the face, um, so you can say well, what was what was what was that uh, or to have a to have a horse with three legs, as someone said about a Picasso painting. I, I always say to them, the other leg is concealed behind one of the legs. What's wrong with you?
2: Thank you. Everyone, please, Ben Oakry. Thank you for your
1: question. I didn't get around... I didn't... I didn't get around. I, I didn't get around saying how absolutely magical and wonderful it has been for me to be here in New Zealand. I've, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard so much about, I've heard so much about this place and 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 uh, and, and all of you. Um, you've been part of our, my kind of consciousness for a long time. So for me, it's like a, a kind of really wonderful dream come true. Thank you. I hope
0: you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers Festival you can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website writersfestival.co.nz.